This is episode 60 of Free as in Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. So, Karen, we, we're uh, we're really back now. Really back. Yeah, so our last episode, <laughs> I was a little bit worried. Because it was not as... Uh, I, I it, didn't see, it didn't have enough of a return flourish as it was supposed to. I'm not sure I follow. I felt pretty flourished. Well, I, it didn't, it, it was not like a, I, I don't know. We, we didn't do any, it wasn't like a very special episode. I thought it was a triumphant return. Uh, I mean, it was probably successful. Uh, we got about, a you know, our usual uh, thousand or so downloads. Did you know that our previous episodes in, in the interim, in this long hiatus, which we have been under, they received 10,000 unique IP numbers downloading them? That's awesome. So people have been downloading that thing. Now, my figure is that like people are putting it in their subscription and downloading it and then never listening to it. That's what I kind of figure. I mean, that's surely true for some people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for those of you who are actually listening, thank you. Well, yeah. And you stuck I with think, us. So we're, we're slowly getting listeners back. So that's good. Uh, and well, I think I, I, I did hear from someone, not about this particular episode, but about our previous uh, collection of episodes that they wanted us to do like less meta. <laughs> well, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm fine with that. And this is, you know, this is, uh, I suppose, meta, but that's uh, the opening is supposed to be that, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think we should get to our ne- our topic, which is pretty exciting, I think. <laughs> It's a pretty well. It's it's a it's behind the curtain. It's behind the curtain. Well, the backstage I, I should say things that the, were falling apart. And yeah, I was gonna say, and this is the thing that people criticize us for because I was gonna say that while it's a, the 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 reason that we're discussing it is somewhat exciting, but what we're discussing is depressing. Well, I, I suppose that's true, but but what we're we're going to do, and I think people are going to be really interested in this is we're going to explain to them, not even explain, we're going to actually record our work preparing a joint talk for a conference. Yes, so Bradley and I are going to be doing a keynote at FOSDEM in February, which is super exciting. It's not very far away. <laughs> so, Well, I mean, it's pretty far away because I'm here on the West Coast of the United States and it's <laughs> in Brussels, Belgium. And I'm actually laying over at JFK, which means I'm flying an extra pointless five hours to cross the continental United States for no good reason, except that Delta made it cheaper. Right. So it is pretty far well, away. Well, you know, New York really is the center of everything. Well, it's the center of my layover on January <laughs> 29th. That much is true. Uh, however, mm-hmm. what we're going to be doing is this keynote that's a joint talk. And for those who don't give a lot of conference, first of all, people should realize that conference talks are really a performance. It's a performance. There's no question. Do you, do you dispute that, Karen? 
Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. It's absolutely a performance and it's there's a degree of showmanship involved. There definitely is a degree of preparation. And when you see someone speak, you usually can figure out, like, have they prepared for this talk or not? Well, yeah. And we usually don't prepare for talks. So we prepare somewhat for talks. Not really. Well, (laughs) I mean, we're at the point where a lot of our stuff we've talked about so many times that, you know, we don't really have to rehearse in the same way because we've rehearsed them. We've said the we've said those things millions of times before, whether it's in conversation or on stage. And I think the other thing that people that don't give a lot of talks don't know is that giving a talk with another person is more than twice as hard as giving a talk by yourself. It's so much harder. And we've done it in the past. And I don't think we've ever done it really successfully. Well, I think we, we years ago, we did a talk that we really prepped heavily. I think our first joint talk we ever did was well prepped. Uh, but Which one was that? A long time ago, we did one. It, uh, you know, it was about the topic that's long gone and all that sort of stuff. But um, <laughs> I can't even remember what it was. The point is, it's a point, it's a topic we don't even need to discuss anymore. But uh, that was well prepped. And if we don't well prep a joint talk where, you know, people talk to each other. We, 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 Karen and I did a tutorial once. We didn't prep it very well. It was a disaster. But I also had a migraine in the middle of it. That's true. But it, it was not well prepped. So what we're going to do is we're actually, but, and, and part of this is because it makes easy content uh, for you all. So that's the, that's the fact of the matter. That's, uh, that's really pulling back the curtain. That's true. But... <laughs> What we're going to do is we're going to work through what we're going to do in this keynote. So the upside is that if you don't get to Fosdem and you listen to the show instead, you'll actually get more information than you would get if you watch our talk at Fosdem, which we'll broadcast on the Oddcast as well eventually. But leading up to it, you'll get the all the prep work, all the how do we get there kind of stuff. And that sounds really boring, except that the topic is really interesting and also deeply personal. Well, and the other thing is, is that uh, what, what, what will probably be interesting to our listeners is we're going to talk about the a lot of different things that we might not put in the final talk. So we're going to talk through everything that we could possibly put in the talk, and then you have to edit. That's the thing. But this is going to be uh, well, it's going to be edited because Dan Lynch is going to edit this show, but it's not going to be edited in the sense that we're going to cut material out. It's going to be all the material uh, fit to broadcast, uh, which is much more than we'll actually go into <laughs> real talk. Yeah. And I think like the conversation where we figure out what we should be talking about, I think will be interesting. I think it will be interesting. So why don't we get started and let them listen to us? So Karen, should I should I read them the uh, the 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 abstract of the talk before we start, so people know actually well, the talk we're prepping? Well, we should actually. I mean, we can we can at least say what the title is. The title of our talk is "Can Anyone Live in Full Software Freedom Today?" Confection, confessions of activists who try but fail to avoid proprietary software. Right, and I'm going to go ahead and read the abstract just for listeners who are listening in a mobile environment and may not. Have, may not be able to look online and they want to know what it is. So I'm just going to read. This, this is the abstract as we submitted, as is on the Fosnum website uh, for this keynote. So the abstract is, the FOSS community suffers deeply from a fundamental paradox. Every day, 
There are more lines of freely licensed code than ever in history, but every day it also becomes slightly more difficult to operate productively using only open source and free software. In one sense, we live in the paramount of success of FOSS. Developers can easily find jobs writing most freely licensed, mostly freely licensed software. Companies, charities, trade associations, and individual actors currently collaborate together on the same code bases in relative harmony. The entire internet would cease to function without FOSS, yet the last mile of the most critical software we rely on in our daily lives is usually proprietary. We, the presenters of this talk, live in... Live, I'm sorry, the, we, the presenters of this talk, live as canaries in the coal mine of proprietary software. We have spent our lives seeking to actively avoid proprietary software, but both personally and professionally, we find ourselves making compromises. In this talk, we report the results of our diligent efforts to use only FOSS in our daily work. Ideally, it would be possible to live in software, a software freedom lifestyle in the way a vegetarian lives a vegetarian lifestyle. Minor inconveniences at some restaurants and stores, but generally most industrialized societies provide opportunity and resources to support that moral choice. Not so with proprietary software. Often the compromise between spend hours of a day, hours of day, or days for tasks that would take merely minutes with proprietary software. In other cases, important opportunities are simply not offered to those who choose software freedom. The advent of network services, which mix server-side secret software with proprietary JavaScript or apps, are central to the decline in the ability to live productive, convenient life in software freedom. However, few in our community focus on this, the implications of this and related problems, and few now even try to resist it. We have tried to resist it, and while we have succeeded occasionally, we have failed overall to live a life in software freedom. In this talk, we report on what the resistance, where the resistance fails most and why. Finally, we will make suggestions of what, where volunteer developers can most strategically focus their efforts to build a world where all can live in software freedom. So that's the abstract that we proposed. So remember proposing that, Karen? Yeah, I mean, it literally just sums up our everyday struggles and the things that we talk about most often between us, actually, as friends. Right. Well, this all started this. I mean, my view, this all started with the HTC dream. That's how all this started. Okay. Is that what you think? I th That's what I think. I'm not sure. You said that earlier. You said this all started with the HTC dream. And I am not so sure about that. Oh, but you think it started I, with I, your heart device, basically? Well, I, I mean, my understanding of how important this issue was started with my heart device. Well, I guess um, your heart device was the first compromise you made. No, my I was still compromising heavily before my because I didn't. I did think that software freedom was very important at the time, but I wasn't. I was still very new. You were a noob. So, I was. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I had I had moved to, you know, I I had moved to almost entirely free software, but I had some things that I was still doing that I I was using proprietary software for, and wasn't troubled too much by it. And it was going through the experience of needing the proprietary medical device and thinking about its implications that kind of opened my eyes to how important the issue was. And then I started to eradicate whatever proprietary software I had left. So what was different for me was that, uh, so, so I, I, I feel like that time period, 
that where your medical device thing first came up, that for me was the golden age of software freedom. And the reason, God. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's probably true. And I talk about getting my device in 2008, but for me, this all started in 2006. Right. Cause you had to make the, you had to start making the decisions in 2006, uh, before the yeah, surgery. And happened. it was before, but by the time I got my, defibrillator i i had i had really come strongly towards the software freedom uh side so there was a transition for me in that time and i totally agree with you that there was this golden age at that right. time and the reason i think there was a golden age is because so so uh, i often tell this story this we probably i don't know if we're going to use well we're just throwing everything out there and we're going to figure out what we're going to use in the talk so one of the stories we could use in the talk is the story of of when i was first when i was building servers in 2005 I, the, the, I, I had a decision to make because, because people like, people don't realize like how recent all this stuff was. Serial ATA was relatively new in 2005, the beginning of 2005 when I was building a bunch of servers. And I had to make a choice about building the servers based on regular parallel ATA, you know, PATA devices or serial ATA devices, uh, hard drives inside the machine. And at the time, there weren't any free software drivers for Linux for serial ATA. I built those servers at like this period of time. And by the end, so I built them all parallel ATA, like old school technology. Cause I was like, I know this all works. I know this all works with free software. I don't have to install any proprietary software to make this work. And the interesting thing that happened was by the end of 2005, every single serial ATA, dev- uh, you know, card on the market, was supported by Linux. It was this, it was this watershed moment for Linux where the hardware vendors in 2005 finally realized, because we had this problem up until 2005, that they would build hardware and not care if it worked on Linux. And 2005 was the year that hardware vendors finally said everything has to work on Linux, at least on the server side. And this was, of course, before. Ajax, which is what we used to call Web 2.0, which we now call the the web, I guess. But their websites in those days were not heavily JavaScript. They were CSS and HTML, and that was it. Um, there wasn't uh, JavaScript was a toy uh, for most web developers in those days. It was just becoming something that people tried to build on. Uh, and so there was this moment where the web was not proprietarized. You know, apps, phone apps didn't exist yet. And we gotten everything working with Linux. Like, like it's around the time when Matthew Garrett was making sleep and hibernate work on laptops because he was working on power management. So all these things were happening such that all the hardware we had in like 2006 finally worked with 100% free software. Like we, we were like at a few minor, like, oh, some wireless cards didn't work. And of course, you know, people were solving that problem. So it was like, we were almost there to 100% software freedom, right? In that, in that time frame. And that was yeah. A that's interesting. I mean, I think that uh, because of where I was coming from, I I didn't see that in quite the same way. And how did you see it at the time? Well, no, I mean, I was I, because I started at the very I, I started. Well, I mean, other than you know the the introduction I had at university in the nineties, I um I you know I didn't really start getting involved again until two thousand the very end of two thousand five. So, mm-hmm. you know, I started getting involved in a very casual way. Like I didn't, 
I thought open source was cool, you know? I didn't think that software freedom was essential. And it was important. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, when I met you, you, you were you. a Mac user. What? I mean, so when I met you, you used a Mac. Yeah, exactly. I was like really a serious Mac fangirl. So oh, I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna out you for that. I was just gonna say you used a Mac. No, I mean it's I true. To... It's uh, you know you have to. This is one of those things about meeting people where they are. You know, like you have to start somewhere, and until you become educated, until you find out about the issues, you don't know. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and uh, there were some things that I was doing that were, you know, that were, there was no way to transition to free software even then, like, and now it's better, actually, but like DJing, I was DJing a lot. And there was no way I was going to be able to DJ with free software. That just wasn't really an option then. And there were a lot of things like that, that I just didn't, you know, it just didn't occur to me. But it was in some ways a golden time, as you say, because we weren't in the mobile phone environment yet. Right. And and I was also looking so, so, so what I feel happened, and so this is like a little bit disjointed because I think later in the talk we would want to raise this. But what I feel was happening then is we were getting pressure from both the bottom and the top. So the pressure from the bottom was what I was most obsessed with. I was worried about device drivers. I was worried about hardware support, all that kind of stuff. The, the stuff on the bottom that was being proprietorized again. Uh, because we were just getting to the point where like firmwares for laptops were starting to be liberated in, in, in those years. So I thought we have totally liberated the bottom. I wasn't paying attention to the top at all, like the, the application area, because um, that's where you're talking about. When you're talking about DJing, you're talking about like an application didn't exist. I wasn't even worried about applications because I never cared because I had all the ap- applications I ever well, wanted. Yeah, there was also equipment, you know, like uh, there's a bunch of stuff involved, but yeah. Okay. Um, so, so I felt like we were winning on the bottom and then the top was just a matter of time. You know, the application layer was just a, a matter of time. And what I felt happen is we got squeezed from both directions. We got, so, uh, the, this pressure to proprietorize the hardware came because we, we had just, we had also, the other thing that people may not remember or know is that we had just kind of beat TPM. Uh, so trusted computing and all this stuff, uh, was, incredibly popular in the early 2000s and they put these tpm chips in every laptop and nobody used them they didn't work right they didn't do what they were supposed to do and nobody took them seriously so gnu linux based systems just ignored the tpm chip entirely and everything worked fine and people were replacing the starting to replace the bios and all this you know the kind of this golden age was happening uh, and I think I wasn't paying attention. It was, a, and it was around this time that you asked me about the medical device situation, right? Because you were thinking about getting this medical device, and then you asked me what I would do. Yeah, I did. And I said, I don't want to answer. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the reason I didn't want to answer is because I was going to say that. I would I would like to have died for the cause, right? Because that's an easy thing for an activist to say, um, especially when you're not facing the question. Uh, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to ask you to die for the cause, which wouldn't nobody, have helped anyway. Nobody did. <laughs> well, yeah, and it wouldn't have helped anyway. Like it's a, it's a relatively um, naive way of looking at the issue, right? Because like saying like, "Oh, die for the cause," that'll actually help. Like it probably wouldn't have helped anyway. It wouldn't help anybody. No. No, it, it wouldn't have. And actually, I think that being able to talk about the whole experience and talk it, be able to talk about what I learned from all of this and 
how it applies to all of our software has has been really powerful advocacy I've been able to do. So weirdly, having that heart condition and getting the proprietary software implant turned out to be probably the best thing I could have done to help software freedom, even though that's kind of a weird way to look at it in retrospect. Right. So we've established that I was just totally wrong about that approach, um, which is good because like, you know, I'm not going to get very I often far listen and- to you, but I don't always listen to you. Well, I, I just refused to answer because um, <laughs> I didn't want to say that. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, you said it just that way. Actually, I recall you said you don't want me to answer because and you did answer me, even though you said yeah. you weren't answering me. Yeah, that sounds like me. And um, I subsequently put off getting my defibrillator for like two years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not because but of you what did. you said, but because the whole thing was so upsetting. Yeah. And generally, it, it's just sort of uh, it. it uh, I think what I realized from that experience was how how the how the the narrow my world was in the sense that I was concerned about computing in the places where I was using computers, and what I wasn't really thinking about was the fact that other people were going to start using computers more, right? And that's why I think it, that's why I kept saying it kind of started with the HTC Dream because it kind of started. I mean, it didn't really start with the HTC Dream because that was, you know, the first uh, Android phone. It started with the iPhone, right? It started with Apple saying that we're going to make the phone and the computer be the same thing. That's where I think things got really, really bad. Very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some arguments to be made that it happened before then, that the desktop wars really were deeply problematic uh and then and then having the um introduction of gnome 3 which further fragmented desktop use um and then all of the attempts to race after some success on mobile uh without any kind of coherent strategy i, I think is is another piece of that and it's funny because we're, I like this discussion. I think we should have it. This is not how I would structure the talk, by the way. So I like doing this historically, but I would probably start with, uh, you know, like the, the higher issues of control over our technology, not with the history of when things went awry. Yeah. Uh, so we can do okay. that later and then reassess. I just wanted to mention that because, like. Yeah, you could be right. See, I, I, I don't know. I always find in talks it makes more sense. So that, I mean, this is our, this is uh, so for the listeners who are still hopefully listening. Uh, this is our process, right? I mean, this is the way Karen and I have designed uh, our, and we don't just. Uh, I should note, we don't just design talks this way. We we design messaging for conservancy this way as well. Mm-hmm. Like we we design how we. We, we, cause there's a thing, there's a thing in politics called talking points, which many of you may have heard about, right? And the, the idea of being able to have a way of communicating an important concept in a way that you're, and, and this is what they say in politics, you're on message, meaning that you've worked with other people to design a way of communicating that makes sense. And I, I think when, when you look at, um, I don't know, to pick an example of someone in our current politics who, who isn't very often on message, um, a fellow named uh, Donald J. Trump, um, who happens to be the president of the United States, he's the perfect example of off message, right? Because he never, 
basically never coordinates messages with the rest of his team and his and yet staff. He's always and so forth. on message. Well, but he's always also off message, right? And, and there's a certain allure to that. Like people, so, so like when you watch these kinds of conversations and you see people go off message, it's exciting in part because they're probably going to say something that, that, you know, that, as we used to say, put your foot in your mouth kind of thing, where, where you say something that's really, you, you just, it's just the wrong way to say it. And it, it, it makes the how you said it more interesting than what you're saying, right? And the reason talking points are valuable, like people hate the wooden politician you know the the person who has the message that just is so unmessaged that they're not really saying anything and people used to talk about Al Gore being this way and other politicians have been criticized for being wooden but the upside of being this has the downside of being unmessaged the upside of being unmessaged is you actually communicate clearly a single message that you want people to understand and so what Karen and I do a lot of is we we develop something that's on message right so so that we can communicate to people what we want them to understand and what we we think we've discovered and Part of the process is trying to discover what we actually know, because we we had a sense when we submitted this talk to Fosdem that we knew something about what we faced, but we didn't necessarily we didn't design the talk up front and then submit the abstract. We wrote the abstract first. So now what we're the process we're doing is trying to figure out what, what given that abstract we know that's right. How do we lead people through? And what I hear you saying, Karen, is you think that doing it chronologically just won't work. Well, why do you think chronologically won't work? I think chronologically might work. You often give your talks chronologically. I do. It's true. And, it's, and I, I love chronology. You're, you're you're a little bit historic about how you approach big issues. I, I, I believe in the diachronic approach to education. <laughs> and I'm I'm very uh, personal about it, and so you know I I try to define what the issue is and why it's important, and then focus on exploring the nooks and crannies of it and then arriving at the what we need to do. Um, and so I like to think a little bit more holistically. And I usually I start from a where things are and then sometimes diverge into a how we got here. But I usually start with a what is the problem and why does it matter? Um, but, you know, because we're giving this talk together, we could do whatever you want. I mean, I think it's still interesting if we historically talk about when this when this developed from. I mean, I definitely think that... Um, that as people started relying more on their mobile phones, that the gap for free software to catch up became greater and greater. Um, so, so then, how do we? How do we? So, if we're not going to do chronological, let, let's let's explore it for a minute. If we don't do the talk chronologically, how do we open it? Like, what's the the open isn't because I mean, I'm I rely on chron I rely on chronology so much that I can open with the beginning. You know, in the beginning right. there was software freedom, and then we lost it. Right, but right. if we're not going to open me, with that, what are I, we going to open with? I always start with a uh, "Here's who we are," um, and for me, <laughs> that always goes into "I have this heart condition, <laughs> and I have a defibrillator, and that's deeply problematic." And so I, I go from there to, but this is just one piece of the story because there are so many other pieces of critical technology that I'm relying on. And in order to be functional in the world today, I have to rely on so many pieces of proprietary software. And while I try to limit them as much as I can, I just keep hitting walls. And so for me, I would then start saying, here are the walls that I hit. And, and probably I would categorize them in terms of like the top three or four most important 
areas where I'm forced to use proprietary software, even though I don't want to. And then get into some more amusing asides of the less important things, but that are still annoying and they come up all the time and they're kind of funny sometimes. Like your so, so what? Like what if we catch the audience? And- well, one idea we what if we catch the audience by starting with the story of us of you asking me whether to install proprietary software in your body? Right? Could we? I act like that, that idea. Out? I think we need to possibly talk offline about what some of the other people told me um, as answers because I find talking about this difficult because I feel like what I want to say is incomplete and I don't want to reference conversations that I had on a podcast uh, without thinking about it deeply. Um, Cause different people yeah. told me really interesting, different things. Mm-hmm. And some of our listeners might imagine what some of those things might be. Um, right. I mean, people, so, so I can imagine, I mean, I'll guess at it because you know, I don't necessarily know. I mean, obviously, like, like people who don't care about the issue of free software are going to say, like, what difference does it make? Like, if, if you need this device, you need this device. It doesn't matter. What, yeah, my friend who over brunch started sobbing and said, you need to get this device. Why? I don't even understand the words that you're saying about why you would worry about this. You need this device. This is not some esoteric issue. This is your life. And she, she like, just wouldn't. She wouldn't eat until I told her I was going to get it soon. Right. Understood. So, so, but my only worry is if we open the talk with that, we, we have the most emotional aspects of the talk all up front. Is that the most emotional aspect of the talk? I'm not sure. Okay. Because the despair that I feel about all the proprietary software that I use every day is, I, I mean, it's so great. I mean, great as in big, not great as in awesome, good. <laughs> Unwieldy, overwhelming. Uh, it's overwhelming, <laughs> that what you for meant by sure. Great? Yes. Uh, so, so yeah, so let's, so let's, so let's. And the implications for our future. I mean, so that's what I would do is I would start with my heart condition and then I would veer away into other critical areas. And then in the end, I would bring it back to my heart condition and talk about why all these other things are as critical and why it's so important that we make some movement on it. Yeah, I mean, that's it. And that's for And that we be honest about it, because a huge part of this is confronting the issue, and we're not talking about it at all. So Karen's not giving the talk. But um, (laughs) the thing, that's okay. But the, so so that's actually, for for the purpose of our listeners to explore the question of designing talks, the, the, uh, I I don't want to use the word trope, because that's not fair. Um, But the, the, the method that Karen just described of you open with something basically incredibly emotionally connecting you take it to more substantive material and then you go back to the emotional connection that's a classic uh rhetorical you know i've never studied rhetoric i actually saw a talk I, I'm, I'm sorry to go like basically on a tangent here um somebody actually analyzed a free software talk using uh graduate level rhetorical analysis like an- analyzing rhetoric it was very interesting to me because i don't know any of the terminology for this because i didn't study rhetoric as a as an academic subject but the uh the the interesting thing is that that is a common strategy to, to use. Um, the downside to that is that it, it, I mean, the downside for me, I should say, is that it makes the talk like very similar to some of your other talks. My only worry with that is that didn't you give a keynote previously at FOSDEM that was about, that included some of that. So my only worry is we're repeating ourselves in this particular venue if we take that structure. 
Oh, all of my talks have at least two to five minutes on my heart condition. And I, I used to think that that was repetitive and that I shouldn't do that. But uh, uh, now I realize that for such a short period of time, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it contextualizes who I am. There are probably people listening who have no idea and haven't heard it. And it has to color any of my analysis on this topic at all. So, right. uh, you know, the, the rest of the talk is completely different than anything we've ever talked about. And it involves true confessions, like we were saying before. It involves confessions of what we're using and what we're not, you know, what we're doing, what we're not doing, how much we can live up to our software freedom rhetoric. So... The fact of the matter is we're not going to be able to in one if we're really going to if we're going to podcast the entirety of our talk about how to do this talk. No, we're going to po- we're going to podcast the entirety of the interesting discussion about what we're going to what we're going to do with this talk. I think we're not going to think- use every little we're not going to like you say this and I say this. We're not doing that. We're only talking about the true. substantive, really interesting stuff. I suppose that's true. But our listeners just want to listen to us no matter what we're saying. I don't think that's true. <laughs> like, we could read, like, uh, Lorem Ipsum and stuff, and people would still listen to our show, wouldn't they? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> you okay. can do that show but, without me. <laughs> I, I suppose we could. So so I think what we ought to do – so I, we're not – but the, uh, I, I don't think we're going to be able to finish all the – even the interesting discussion in one show. So maybe we should – so, so one of the things you just mentioned, which I think we should do for the next uh, show, is get into more of some of the substantive stuff we're going to do. So, so let's uh, so let's let's think about like how we're going to do that uh, as part of our part of our next show. So, Karen, I think what our we next have- show should be our confessions. Okay. So Karen, what we have? So another thing I want to do is I want to introduce a- a- another part of free isn't freedom. So, so I've been studying in, in this period of time we have been on hiatus. I have been studying the successful podcasts of the world. And one of the things the successful podcasts do at the end of the podcast, they tell the listener what's coming up on the next episode. Because then you get them to download the next episode. So in the next episode, Karen, we are going to be talking about actual confessional stories of proprietary software that you and I use. That's what we're going to do. So in the next episode, you can hear the two most free software dedicated people in the world tell you what proprietary software they actually use. I would say that you and I are the most radical purists that I have ever met. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. And we'll have to talk about why that's true in the next Show. Well, maybe we'll do that in the episode after that one, because like That's in the next true. episode, we're just going to confess. The next episode will be the, the <laughs> true confessions, which we need to develop for this talk. For this talk to work, we've got to develop uh, a, a series of stories. And I don't know which stories we're going to use, but we're going to give them all to you, podcast listener. You will hear all the stories. You'll hear all of our we'll- dirty secrets. And then Fosdem will do some subset of those. But for the next episode, let's let's do some stories. And so, so we'll have to really prepare for that next episode just to make sure that we, yeah, we have our homework set out for us for next time. I suppose that's true. So let's let's mm-hmm. uh, let's encourage the listener to enjoy that next episode. Free as in freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H. 
www.freedomfreedomfestival.org. The Free is in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website sfconservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot U-S. All episodes of Free is in Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. It's your idea. Test. Do you think it's a bad... Test. Do I think it's a bad idea? Is that what you're asking? Do you think it's a bad idea? I, I don't care. You had a list, point. but it was just a list of things that we compiled. We, I mean, obviously some of those things are not things it's that not we can compiled, right It's not compiled, it's in source code. It's in source form. Yuck, yuck. Yuck. <laughs>